0: Let's pray together briefly. God, I pray as we think and talk about the topic of sex, Lord, help us to think biblically. God, help us to understand this amazing gift that you've given us in terms of what you have clearly said in your word. What I want pray as we talk about this topic today and those who are here today or listening online, or who have experienced brokenness when it comes to sex. I pray, Lord, that by your grace, you would bring healing today. I pray as we remind ourselves of what you have said about sex, Lord, would you um, equip us, Lord, in this arena, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A team of architects conducted a study to observe any physical and psychological influences of having a fence around a playground playground and its effect on preschool children. And the study uh, observed two different scenarios. There was one scenario where they had a teacher uh, and her students on a playground with no fence, and then a comparable playground with that teacher and those students uh, with a fence. And the researchers found a noticeable difference in how the children interacted with the space. On the playgrounds without the fences, they noticed that the children huddled around the center of the playground, not straying too far from the teacher. But on the playgrounds where the where it was fenced in, the children ran around the entire playground feeling free to explore. Now, the researchers concluded that with a boundary, and in this case a fence, it, it maximized the children's enjoyment of the space. They were more free to explore and enjoy the playground. I share that with you because the study was fascinating, number one. But number two, I think that that same principle applies when it comes to sex. That not having any boundaries around sex both cheapens and devalues sex. It was C.S. Lewis who likened sex without boundaries or sex without marriage to tasting without swallowing or digesting. And in fact, we spent all of last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 highlighting the, the boundaries of sex as it comes to sex and morality, what to avoid. And last week we looked at what we are to avoid where we, we don't get any near, we don't get any close to the fence or the boundaries is any type of, of sexual behavior that is outside or beyond what a husband and a wife are to experience within a marriage. That is the fence. And I think it's right to make sure that there's clarity about what those boundaries are, what to avoid. But just as there's a danger in not having boundaries when it comes to sex, so too there's a danger in only focusing on the boundaries when it comes to sex. That yes, not having a fence around the playground negatively impacted the children's ability to play, but imagine for a moment if in that study, the teacher went out there with the students during recess time, and during the entire time during recess, the teacher is only focusing on the, the fence with her children. Imagine as, as the students are, are pointing out the slide and the swings and, and the open grass to run and play in, if, if the teacher ignored all that and just said, yeah, yeah, students, but, but look at the height of the fence over here. Look at the unique material that the fence is actually made out of. Let, let's avoid what's beyond the fence. If the teacher did that, that also would negatively impact the children's ability to play. And admittedly this morning, I think far too often when the church does talk about sex, it is almost entirely about the fence. It is almost always about what to avoid. And again, that's helpful and we absolutely need that. While having boundaries in place is essential to maximizing even the enjoyment of sex, I don't think enough attention is given to the playground of sex. I don't think enough attention is given to the good and right ways to enjoy and to think about sex. So church, let's talk about sex this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. A couple things I want to point out in this passage. We're going to walk through these verses and Lord willing have a better biblical and more theological understanding of sex practically within the marriage. The first thing I want to point out here in verse 1 is what was going on here in the church in Corinth and and why Paul is addressing this is because the, the Christians here at this church were misapplying abstinence within marriage, Now, if you look at verse one, one of the aspects that you need to know is that there is a considerable tone change from Paul. So far in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been blunt, he has been direct, he has been confrontational, even at times sarcastic. But when you get to 1 Corinthians 7, this is one of the least combative sections in the entire letter. Paul uh, speaks to sex in this chapter. He talks about marriage. He talks about divorce. He talks about remarriage. He talks about even singleness. And he does so with a very pastoral and compassionate tone, mainly because these topics are are very personal, that they are very intimate and they can be controversial. And we see his tone right off the bat here in verse one, where Paul begins to address one of the questions or one of the issues that the Corinthians wrote to Paul about. I think the ESV translates this correct correctly by making it clear that what is in quotation marks is actually coming from the Corinthians, not Paul. So if you notice that phrase there where it says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman was something that the Corinthians were advertising. They were were saying and arguing that it was good, it was more spiritual to be abstinent even in marriage. And so Paul now is addressing this. Uh, It's it's hard to even fathom that to to kind of think, how how did they land there? But part of their logic went something like this. They believed and they, they probably talked among themselves and said, okay, Paul, since you are not married and since you are not pursuing marriage, And since in the past you have written uh, for us to abstain from sexual morality, then is it not best to avoid sex altogether? Because even in the new age, the the, the age to come, we're not gonna have marriage. And, And furthermore, according to the Corinthians, the body is of no value. And so what you do with your body doesn't really matter. It only matters about the soul. So if you have sexual urges, well, you have the prostitutes to pursue. That was their logic here and some of their logic that we've seen throughout 1 Corinthians. Now, Paul will affirm celibacy as a gracious gift from the Lord in singleness, but Paul refuses to allow the Corinthians to apply that kind of logic within marriage. And so I think what Paul does here in these verses is he corrects their misunderstanding of sex in marriage in five ways. I'm gonna give five helpful truths about sex and marriage from this passage. Obviously, there are a lot more elsewhere, but we're gonna focus on five here this morning. Now, before we look at these fives, let me just acknowledge the fact that sex within marriage can be challenging. Just wanna say that out loud. And, and I know that uh, you know, for, for those of you who grew up kind of in, in the purity movement, kind of the purity culture within Christianity, uh, sometimes we can believe this message that if you avoid sexual morality, if you're a virgin on your wedding day, then that automatically means you are going to have incredible sex for the rest of your life. Like that was kind of the indirect message that, that was kind of being taught about, even for me growing up, kind of hearing the purity emphasis there. And that is not always the case. There are challenges within marriages as it pertains to sex for numerous reasons. First, there's a challenge of, of communication. Communicating your needs, communicating your desires, communicating your expectations, communicating your past or, or sin in this area can present a challenge. Another challenge is just struggles with our own bodies physically, that our bodies don't work as they should. If you've gone through infertility, you know that can impact uh, sex within marriage or maybe not enjoying sex or having a lack of desire for sex or not performing in sex or, or maybe chronic illness or, or pain or hormonal changes, right? All of these aspects with our physical bodies can present challenges within sex in marriage. Or how about seasons of life, right? Sometimes you're just so tired you don't wanna have sex, or, or there's a limited amount of time, or there's stress or pressure that you're experiencing, and so this presents challenges within sex. Maybe part of your story is abuse, and that, that can make sex challenging. Or maybe sin or, or hidden sin can present challenges within sex and marriage. There are all kinds of challenges. And I, I don't want to stand up here and, and give you a picture of, of Christian sex and marriage as if it is easy and as if there are no issues and no challenges at all. Like that's not realistic and that's not even helpful. And so my encouragement right off the bat here before we look at these five truths is that part of the answer, part of the steps that you need to take if you're experiencing challenges in this arena is not to ignore them, it's not even just to pray about them, but to honestly communicate them with your spouse, to be patient as you walk alongside one another with these issues and if needed, seek counseling. My aim today, is not to make one spouse feel guilty that they need to be having more sex, nor do I want to cause the other spouse to feel empowered to start making unloving demands. That's not my aim and that's not the aim of the passage here this morning. I want to acknowledge that there are challenges in this arena with no easy fixes at times, but I think that these five helpful truths can help frame for us how to think about sex biblically, okay? We're gonna start easy, we're gonna start obvious here, but here are some guidelines for sex, five truths. The first one here is quite obvious, but it needs to be said, is that sex is to be experienced between a husband and a wife. If you look at verse two here, Paul, again, is responding to the Corinthians' position of wanting to abstain from sex and marriage. So he writes, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, and we'll get to that in a moment, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, all right? Now, now we're gonna get and unpack that phrase there. It's actually an idiom in the biblical Greek to refer to sex, but we can see right off the bat here, God's design is for sex to be experienced between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, within the covenant of marriage. All right? Now, that should be obvious to every single person in this room, but this view here has become the minority view. All right? That this minority view now is outdated. It's oppressive. It's unloving. The the, the cultural message today in regards to sex and sexual behavior is that no one, including God or the Bible, can tell you how to use your body. You decide. You have the authority. And the majority of you now today is that of two males or two females, if they wanna love each other, who are you to say otherwise? What kind of hate-filled, judgmental, arrogant people are you to tell others who they can or cannot love. That's that's the message that we're living in today. And yet for us as followers of Jesus, who believe in the authority of God's word, we believe that sex was created by God. That God has spoken clearly and authoritatively as it relates to how sex is to be experienced. So God's voice is the voice of authority here, not cultures, and not our own feelings. And I think sex to be experienced according to the design of the creator, really, it boils down to, will you use your body to please yourself, to gratify yourself, to express yourself, or will you use your body to glorify God and to please him? I think sex according to the creator of the universe is not just a matter of right and wrong, but it's also a matter of maximum satisfaction that glorifies God. That God has created men and women to complement each other. God has specifically designed men and women to fit together in ways, many ways, but specifically in sex. And so sex between two males or two females that violates God's design and is sinful. It's explicitly prohibited and sinful in Leviticus 18 and Romans 1 and other passages throughout the New Testament. And so just to remind us this morning, sex only works in the fullest way God intended for one man, one woman within the exclusive, permanent, legal commitment of marriage. Or to put it a different way, sex is a God-invented way to say to another person, I belong completely, and exclusively and permanently to you, all right? This is God's design. This is God's desire that we see here in verse two. But the second helpful truth here, as we get more practical, is that sex is a gift from God to enjoy, all right? If you notice the language in verse two, Paul says, men should have his own wife. Each woman should have her own husband, Like I said before, this phrase is an idiom in the biblical Greek that almost always refers to sex or it refers to continuing in sexual relations within marriage. So Paul here is encouraging not only marriage, but he's also encouraging the gift of sex. He wants ongoing, consistent, regular sex within marriage. Why? Because it is a good gift from the Lord. All right, and look, sex in marriage, this is, not, this is not icky. This is not a cause of embarrassment. Sex in marriage is not an obligatory chore. Sex within marriage is, is not a barter chip. It's not a, a weapon or a manipulation piece. This is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us, and we ought to give him praise for it and be unashamed about it. All right, now, if you need proof for the way that the Bible talks about sex, you you might want to read Song of Solomon. It is very explicit in its portrayal of sex as this gift to be enjoyed between a man and a woman within a covenantal marriage. Just to give you a few examples of this, Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 says, "'Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine.'" or chapter two, verse three. This is symbolism here. He's not actually talking about fruit, but it says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. There's a clear portrayal throughout the Bible of sex being a gift from God to enjoy and to pursue and not to be embarrassed about. Now, Let me provide some balance this morning, because while sex is a gift from God to enjoy, while it is important, sex is not ultimate. Sex is not something that defines us. Sex, although a gift, is not something that satisfies the deepest longings within our souls. In fact, the elevation of sex to a higher degree than what God has prescribed is actually one of the issues that we see in the LGBTQ movement. In fact, uh, Alex Duke, who's written, I think a fabulous article on this piece called uh, How Sex Became King, he writes this. He says, the hashtag love is love means that love is reduced to sex, which means marriage is reduced to sex, which means sex has been crowned king of a kingdom it remains far too weak to effectively rule. Though sexual desire goes deep, it doesn't go soul deep. It hasn't been given by God to define who we are as human beings, such that any deprivation of sex entails a deprivation of our very humanity, our very livelihoods, or or our very thoughts and identities. It's possible that much of the sexual frustration we feel stems from an exaggeration that says sexual expression is integral to the human psyche. That if my sexual needs aren't satisfied, then I'm somehow less than human. Again, when staked to the essence of identity, sex is made king of a kingdom, it's entirely too weak to rule. I think that it's so incredibly important just to remind ourselves, yes, it's a gift. Yes, it's important. But God did not design sex to define us or to even meet our deepest needs. Okay? Now, the third truth here that I see in verses three and four is that sex is a mutually unifying expression of oneness. You look at verse two, Paul's clear that he wants sex to be enjoyed within marriage, but He gives further instruction on that in verses three and four. And if you notice in these verses, there is an emphasis on giving in these verses, that the spouse is to give to the other their conjugal rights. Now, remember, Paul is correcting the notion here in Corinth that it's more spiritual to abstain from sex in marriage. But notice the way he corrects them. He corrects them by emphasizing the mutual responsibility of each spouse, not just the offending party, that married couples are both indebted to one another sexually. And, and Paul is, is emphasizing this here because in verse five, he, he's going, he has to say, do not deprive one another of sex within marriage. But again, Paul's emphasis is not for the spouse to say to the other spouse, you owe me. Paul's emphasis here is to have the mentality of I owe you in a spirit of mutuality. If you look at verse four, Paul takes it a step further and talks about the idea of authority. He says that the husband does not have authority over his own body, his wife does, and vice versa. But the idea of authority here is that when it comes to your own body, it's not your own body. But he is saying that not to emphasize the fact that you're going to possess the body of your spouse and start making demands. He's not saying this so that you tell your spouse, you better do this or that, or you better perform this or that for me or else. No, Paul is calling each spouse to have the mindset that my body, my spouse's body are gifts that we give freely to one another mutually in a spirit of oneness. Now, I want to make clear this morning that these verses are in no way grounds for making abuse ever okay in marriage. In fact, abuse of any kind is wrong and it is sinful. These verses are not even to be used as weapons or, or for a spouse to start making unloving demands. Husbands, as we lead and love our wives, we are to do so in the example of Christ in Ephesians 5, to do so lovingly and to do so sacrificially as wives submit to our leadership. But I think the reason that Paul is calling us to have this kind of mindset is because sex is to be a mutually unifying expression of oneness. It's not about what I can get, it's about what I can give. Paul even quotes Genesis chapter two, verse 24, in chapter six, verse 16, the passage we looked at last week and said that in marriage, two become one flesh. Two becomes one. Two that were separated now are unified as one. And within sex here, we we need to be reminded this morning that that sex is way more than just the physical. Sex is way more than just uh, having a sense of personal fulfillment. Sex is way more than, than what is projected in Hollywood. But sex is this unifying and mutual expression of your oneness with your spouse. And I wonder if if some have misunderstood sex by either making it ultimate or by reducing it as an obligatory chore because it's been reduced to something just physical. That yes, it includes the physical. Yes, it is pleasurable, but it is way more than that that sex expresses that oneness that is all-encompassing between a husband and a wife emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, and, and this is really important, and sex is an act of unification with your spouse. Now, Tim Keller puts this way better than I, than I ever could. This is a long quote, but so helpful in framing the purpose of sex. He says this, that sex is sacred because it constitutes a covenant renewal ceremony. The original purpose of sex was to become one flesh, meaning a complete personal union. Sex creates deep intimacy, oneness, and communion between two people. In the Bible, oneness is not simply a matter of emotion, but is always the creation of a covenant. The Bible is full of covenant renewal ceremonies. When God enters into a personal relationship with someone, he is not so unrealistic as to think that mere emotion can serve as the basis for it. He knows that human emotions come and go and that there needs to be something binding to provide consistency and endurance. So God requires a binding public legal covenant as the infrastructure for intimacy. It is far easier to be vulnerable to someone who has bindingly promised to be exclusively faithful to you than to someone who is under no obligation to stay with you for more than one night. Thus, God demands covenants, but even that is not enough. He regularly gets his people together to reread the terms of the covenant, remember the history of his acts of grace in their lives, and recommit themselves through renewal of the covenant. The ultimate covenant renewal ceremony is the Lord's Supper. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper renews the covenant made at baptism through the breaking of bread and the pouring out of wine. It reenacts the selfless sacrifice of Jesus to us. In addition, in the receiving and eating of the sacrament, it reenacts the giving of ourselves to Jesus, that we reenact the total commitment and oneness we have in Christ as a way of renewing and deepening that oneness, catch this, in the same way, marriage is a covenant, one that creates a place of security for vulnerability. But though covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for covenant. The covenant will grow stale unless we continually revisit and reenact it. Sex is a covenant renewal ceremony for marriage the physical reenactment of the inseparable oneness in all other areas, economic, legal, personal, psychological, created by the marriage covenant, that sex renews and revitalizes the marriage covenant. I was not taught that in premarital counseling, and I bet you weren't either in terms of of how to view sex, because the church oftentimes is way too silent on this topic, I think we have a truncated view of sex, reducing it only to the physical. And when that is the case, we miss the beauty and the depth of this gift that God has given us for the purpose of unification within the marriage. So when both spouses have this kind of mindset, they will be selfless givers to the other for the good of expressing the oneness in their marriage. All right. So it's three truths. Here's number four here as we continue on. Verse five is that sex is to be a priority. Again, when we look to verse five, there was a common belief in this church at Corinth that sex was to be abstained. So Paul has to be explicitly clear here in verse five, do not deprive one another of sex. Now, Paul could have said, do not abstain from sexual relations in marriage. He could have said that, but he uses much stronger language here talking about do not deprive one another, meaning do not take away what is rightfully belonging to another. Now, this verse I think shows us that sex is to be a priority within the marriage. And you'll notice here in this verse, Paul gives a disclaimer or an allowance. He says that you can abstain from sex if if both spouses agree for a limited time to devote themselves to prayer and then after that time to come back together. Many interpreters though, believe that this is just a hypothetical situation. In fact, I've never heard of someone doing this practically, where they're going to abstain from sex to pray. And so Paul here, even in verse 6, we see that this is a concession. This is not a command to even regularly practice. And so from this verse, we can see that sex is to be prioritized. Now, I'm not going to stand up here this morning and prescribe the frequency that you should be having sex. That can vary for numerous reasons. In fact, I don't even think that frequency is Paul's point here in this passage. I think Paul is trying to clarify that sex is something that you do not withhold from your spouse, but freely offer it, and it should be prioritized, pursued, and talked about between a husband and a wife. Now, this takes us to the last one. Number five here, we'll close with this, is that sex serves as a means of spiritual protection. At the end of verse five, and even in the beginning of verse two, Paul, I think, explains in part why sex is to be a priority. He says in verse five, do not deprive one another, but if you do for a limited time of prayer, after that time, come back together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Then the beginning of verse two, Paul says, because of the temptation to sexual morality, you should be having sex in marriage. Now, there is a clear connection here between not having regular sex in marriage and the potentially dangerous temptation that's then created to pursue sexual immorality. Now, I say that because I think that's what this passage is is talking about, but I do want to say that in no way husband or wife or husband and wife, do you have any standing biblically to blame your sexual immorality on your spouse for them not having as much sex as you would desire? That's nowhere in the Bible. That is something, that sin is something that you own, and there's no excuse for that. Now, at the same time, both spouses from this verse need to be aware That sex, again, is not just about the physical, but there is something about sex that serves as a means of spiritual protection, that God has has prescribed the arena of marriage to enjoy and partake of sex. That is the playground. And so when one spouse or both spouses take away that playground, there is a temptation to look for sexual fulfillment beyond the fence, beyond the boundaries that God has given us where Satan is beckoning us. So be reminded, God has given us a beautiful, a satisfying playground of sex in marriage for both spouses to enjoy and to satisfy one another. I've I've heard it said before that Satan does whatever it takes to get you into bed with someone before marriage. And then once you're married, he will do whatever it takes to keep you from going into bed with your spouse. I think that's true. And so my encouragement for us this morning as we close, and this is going to sound maybe a little bit odd today, but in terms of thinking about sex biblically, my encouragement is to view sex with your spouse as a form of spiritual warfare. That understanding our enemy, Satan himself, he is plotting ways to separate the oneness in your marriage in all kinds of arenas, but especially in the marriage bed. Understand that's his goal within your marriage is to create distance between you and your spouse. So when you and your spouse are are committed to making sex a priority. That is not only a way to deepen intimacy in your marriage, but that is a form of spiritual protection, that sex can actually be an act of worship, that every aspect of our lives is to be an act of worship, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God, including sex. And far too often, we don't practice that in our relationships with our spouses when it comes to sex, but this is a beautiful gift that God has given us that we should give him praise for, and he should receive glory as we pursue it rightly. That sex is a foretaste of complete union with God, That sex points to the kind of of intimacy and satisfaction on a much deeper level that we will experience with God one day. And even the deepest kind of love within marriage is, is only a hint of God's love for us. And so yes, there's enjoyment with sex, but on the other hand, sex cannot completely fill that void that we have within our own souls. Only God in Christ can. And so marriages that have the best sex life occur when both spouses find their worth, find their satisfaction in Jesus Christ first and foremost. So church, marriages, as we think about applying the gospel in this arena in our lives, let us do so biblically, unashamedly, and with joy as we enjoy this gift from the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and praise you that every good and perfect gift comes from you. We thank you, oh God, that you have given us not only the gift of marriage, but the gift of sex. And Lord, we confess to you, Lord, how difficult it is to pursue, Lord, biblical sex, the sex that you have laid out for us to enjoy and to experience. God, we face temptations all around us, or we face on a daily basis a cultural message that has hijacked the biblical form of sex. So God, would you give us courage to be followers of Jesus that view sex with our spouse as an act of worship to you. Can we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.